Hello and welcome to another episode of the Field Musicast with me, David, and, and me, Peter, from the band Field Music, where we are going to not talk very much about one of our songs, but use it as an excuse to talk about other songs and other music that we are influenced by, that we have quite possibly stolen ideas from in a very respectful and in no way legally binding way. For this episode, we're going to talk about Do Me A Favour. Hey 
So, um, what led you to write a song such as this? I think that there is a perception that field music make complicated music. And we have made some music that's quite complicated. Too complicated for us to play sometimes. Quite often, yes. But I think that it's not it's not a very true characterization of what we are interested in. I think if we've made complicated things, it's because we are trying to do something new and try and do something which is like true to us, not rely on cliches, not not do that thing where you make songs out of symbols that everyone's already familiar with, you know, like rejig the symbols of what is supposed to go in a pop song. Um, and actually, complicated is not the same as good. Complex is not the same as meaningful. Also, simple isn't the same as good. There's just not that correlation. But I think if we've done things that uh, seem complicated or seem like musically strange, it's because we're, we'd, we've been trying to do something new. Um, but actually, like right now for us, the idea of some, doing something that's really, really simple feels like, that's oh, new territory to explore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think because the last record was complicated because of its, the the, the idea behind it. Yes. Yeah. The structure of it was, was complicated. It was a complicated task. There was a lot to fit into making a new world conceptually and to make it work as a performance. Um, and and I, I, that doesn't make it good or, or bad or... Um, this is what I mean. It's, I just don't think there's a correlation between complicated because of the idea that we had for it it had to be it, it had to be complicated but actually like over the last few years a lot of the music that I've listened to in terms of um what people think of as like classic songwriting I've been listening to a lot of music which is very simple and sometimes like elegant in its simplicity and sometimes raw. Inelegant. <laughs> yeah, direct. Because um, I listen to quite a lot of old rhythm and blues records, At Atlantic compilations, Stax compilations, early rock and roll stuff. Um early soul stuff and it's not like I listen to those things and think oh the performances are great but the songs are like neither here nor there I actually think in 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 that in that way the, the, it's great songwriting because what you're trying to do is really directly communicate an idea you're not necessarily mm -hmm. telling a story. Some of the great rock and roll songwriters do, like um, Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller. 
they wrote great, really clever stories. But that's not the only only thing. It's more often about a particular turn of phrase, which sums up the whole thing. It doesn't need to have lots going on lyrically. It's just about getting that idea across. And I suppose that's what I want to do with Do Me A Favour. You know, it's a song about obligation and duty and how friendship is reciprocal. I mean, specifically, that's a song about my daughter being really annoying and me wanting her to be less annoying and helpful. But I would hope that it would work as a song outside of that that context. Um, But the impetus for what it was going to be musically and lyrically to a degree comes from those old uh, R&B records, which have that really direct punch. The likes of Why Do Fools, Fools Fall In Love by Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. And I suppose the thing that strikes me with a record like that, although it seems kind of straight straightforward to our ears now, you know, I think a lot of the kind of, um, let's call it complexity, is in the performance. This is it's the way that there's everything's certain, played. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of personality in it. There's tons um, of personality in it. There's, it's, it's almost to the point of being chaotic, but it, it's, it's the kind of record which it's more natural to make. I think if everyone's in the same room together, you've got a couple of hours to get it down. You know what the chords are. The bass player plays a bass part. The saxophone player plays a saxophone. The the group, you know, the the, the vocal group have their parts within it. But you're not going to like refine and refine and refine what each element does. The complexity comes from the fact that there's the, all this like inconsistency in personality yes, in the performances. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a, like a beautiful, exciting thing to listen to. And actually... You know, going back to the idea of like what people think field music is about, where, where maybe it's like doesn't quite um, fit with the reality. It's like we record a lot of stuff really quickly and quite a lot of our songs, like right through all of our records. The first day we've played it together is the day we record the basic tracks of the song. Yeah, yeah. And more, more often than not. Yeah. And you give, um, you, you've got a certain amount of time because we've only got a certain amount of time and you need to quite quickly get to the point where you know the structure of the song and you know a, a, an idea of what the part is going to be. And then hopefully as soon as you've got that, you get it. So you get the energy before you start to refine and refine and refine and it becomes less fun because I think we, we do try and capture a bit of fun and spontaneity. Um, although clearly it doesn't always come across because people think that we spend hours and hours and hours programming in every bass drum. Well, I mean, we do, we do spend a lot of time, uh, you know, kind of afterwards making sure that, you know, making, making something out of the performances. Making something out of the performances. Yeah. Making something out, out of the performances. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what people think or if they think anything. Or if they it's care. just because people talk to us on Twitter and I have right. to. Right. Well, I kind of, I, I, miss, in, I miss all that. I, I miss all the Twitter arguing stuff. on Twitter a little bit. Yeah, I, I'm, I kind of miss all that. Um, but I think we do, you know, we do spend 
yeah, what do we spend our time doing? Because we we do we do seem to spend quite a lot of time making music. So what what do we? It's not it's not normally in like learning the song, or the very you know when we very first perform it, especially if it's me and you playing together or something like that, or when me you and Andy played it together. I think we kind of rehearsed it a bit, and then as soon as it was right enough, then we you played it. it. Yeah. Then we recorded it. <laughs> um, but then obviously we spend more time. Okay, we're going to do some overdubs. I mean, even then, you know, I don't don't know whether we spend that much that much time. Yeah, it's not like we do take after take after take of things. Um, you know, there's some instruments where one or the other of us is like less proficient, and it or the the part is more complicated and it takes like mm-hmm. takes longer. I mean, if I'm trying to play a piano part, you might have to set aside the entire day, which is why I just don't. And that's don't quite do often that. the same with like a bass part, for instance. I might have an idea for a bass part, but I. I just can't play this. I can't play this. Yeah. And or I can c- only play it on fretless. <laughs> and if if that's the case, you know, we Boom. got you got to be you got to be careful. Maybe we should be less careful with the fretless. Actually, I just get it on, just lash it all over the place. Um, I mean, I think quite often we'll spend time trying to get the right sound or the right part for something which is quite small detail. So like, oh yeah, well, it's got to have a percussive part and it's got to have this feel and it has to do this thing. Does the shaker work? Spend 10 minutes recording shaker? No. no. <laughs> Does the maracas work? Spend 10 minutes recording the maracas and then 10 minutes recording a different set of maracas that sounds slightly different? No. no. Does the cabasa work? Oh, maybe, but I can't quite play it in time, so I need to spend the next half an hour getting good at playing the cabasa. Yeah. So I think there's a bit of that, and a bit of that happens with a lot of a lot of the songs. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, I, I remember doing um, when we were recording the first Slug album. You've heard about the hand hand clap gate. That was in the period where I had become so frustrated with trying to make the first Slug album that I had to just <laughs> leave you and Ian to it. Well, the thing is, what I found was. Um, Ian had done a demo. Anyway, this we're talking about something. You can cut this out if you want. But Ian, Ian had done a de- like a demo. In inverted commas, you can't see me doing that. Um, of the first track on the Slug album, and I was like, okay, that's really good. Hand claps sound great, but let's record it properly now. And I've learned that that's a mistake. If it sounds okay, even if it's at the wrong. Everything. It's the wrong sample rate. It's in it's the red. The, it's, it, it's the wrong thing. Everything's ta- wrong. It kind of sounds terrible. Like, but does it sound <laughs> cool? Yeah. Does it sound different? So me and Ian spent a whole day recording hand claps, different rooms in the studio, blah, 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 different reverbs. All sounded terrible. <laughs> because it didn't sound like this actually unique thing that Ian had come that up had with. Done. Yep. And that, And actually, I've learned... I've learned from Ian because of that. Sometimes it's like, this is not quite right, but it's right. it's not wrong enough to delete. <laughs> and just it's, learn and it's different it. enough <laughs> to be the thing now. Yeah. I, I mean, that 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 is one of the reasons why now um, my demos, the kind of demo that I, I might do at home when I'm writing a song, I deliberately make them sound absolutely I was wondering God-awful. I was wondering why you did that yeah <laughs> like the, singing's, a out of tune, that, the singing's out of tune and the guitar is probably in tune but kind of played badly and the the drum programming will be like the most simple rubbish thing that I can put down so there is no desire 
when we come in at the studio to replicate anything from it. I mean, occasionally that, that hasn't worked out right because I remember when we were writing Disappointed and it came up with the riff and... And we said, oh, we'll just use one microphone on the drums. We'll just use one microphone on the drums and we'll quickly get this idea down. Ha, ha, ha. And then there's no way we'll want to recreate this demo. But actually the sound of the drums through that one microphone on the wrong side of the room sounded so great that we then had to do that again (laughs) when we came to record it. So there are pitfalls. But yeah, that... That's uh, my excuse, anyway. Well, and I think demos. that was one of the one of the ideas, maybe, is behind doing a song like um, "Do Me a Favor," where we take. Do you know what? It's dead straightforward. What, like Dave, what shall I play? He's like, I don't know. Just play, play what you want. Rock beat, <laughs> rock one, rock beat, one. Bruce, rock beat one, please. Um, but again, like specifics, like okay, no hi hat. Yeah. No higher or what I would do with this hand. I don't know, tap your leg. <laughs> tap your leg with a stick. I had bruises. I'm sorry. Well, one bruise, actually. One big bruise. One big bruise in exactly the place where yeah. your drumstick might hit your thigh. So I think we did two takes, and then I was like, I've, I've had enough now. I, that was all, it, it was, that was enough. Um, but that, yeah, like getting that energy through is is what I wanted, and to make it very simple. And we could have maybe tempted to do a more produced version of this song because sometimes it can sound nice to have a, a Well, look, that's song. interesting as well, isn't it? Sometimes do let's do something really shiny for the sake of like it being for that, for that reason. Let's see what, let's see what the difference is. Yeah. Because sometimes you get a, like a song, which is, has that directness but the production is super shiny. I mean, again, which is like maybe a bit of an influence subconsciously on a song like this. So like, um, I've been listening to quite a lot of Tom Petty. So a song like I Won't Back Down, which is like the shiniest production you could imagine. Which we ended up singing on. We had had to play it. and And then, so we had to learn the chords and there's not many chords in it. There's not a lot of... I played tambourine, I, I don't know. I, I learned the chords. It was it was quite easy. I, it it had the... Um, like my Achilles heel when it comes to learning other people's songs is when there's only three chords and the structure of the song is like oh, yeah. doing those three chords in a different variations. <laughs> I, I, I find that I really struggle with that. Like Dylan songs. Yeah. Like play these, it's only three chords. Yeah, but where are the chords? <laughs> <laughs> you still got to put them in the right place. I I had I had a bit of a mental block about it. Um with with I won't back down. Got there in the end, but it's like it makes actually now I want to go and like see some live versions of it where of Tom Petty of Tom Petty doing I won't yeah. back down cuz I imagine Do you we, think they got the chords wrong? no no i'm just thinking like it's a song which which would work anyway it's not dependent on the production the production's amazing like oh yeah ridiculous over the top slicker than jeff lynn everything right right on the on the money but that's not that's not what makes the song great and it's 
it's one of those songs again where it's like there's not many lyrics and most of the lyrics are the same thing said in a different order yeah which is actually do you know that's a strange thing for us to be admitting because I think maybe a, a few years ago we would have said actually the song is also the record you can't you know we were kind of against that idea of well, a, a, a song is good if you can play it. And I, we still don't agree with this, but it is, a, it is a, a different way of looking at it. You know, the idea that a song is a good song if you can play it without all the... If you can just play it on acoustic guitar or just play it on a piano. That's not true. I, no, no. That's not true. But it can be true. Yeah. Again, it's one of those things where it's like, there's not really... It can be It's a, not a correlation. Or it, it really depends yes. on what your definition of great songwriting is. Um, and another thing that I had an argument about on Twitter, I may have said... Are you... Are you what's happening on Twitter, Dave? I, it's are you going to get blocked or what? No, it's always good-natured stuff. I don't, okay, I don't okay. call anyone names. Um, ex- yeah, I don't call it... Except- I, don't, I don't call many people names. <laughs> um, Just by their own name. The idea that actually for like rock music, what I think of as rock music, like good songwriting isn't, isn't, ne- isn't necessary. Or it's not the most important thing. Yeah, and I think I think I'm sure I heard Peter Gabriel say something along those lines. Like, if the music's good for rock music, then that's rock. That's good rock music. That, yeah, yeah. And I, it, but like, it, but maybe like for so, for song songwriting songs, songs, composed songs, where the, you know the lyric is the is the thing. And obviously, when the two are together, then you have, you know, Paul Simon. Well, oh, you know, or Graceland, as opposed to. Yeah, but I don't even think of like I don't even think of Graceland as being rock music, really. Yeah, what is it? What sort of music is it? Is it not? Is it not rock music? I don't know. I don't. It's it. What, I, what certainly what I was thinking of when I said like rock music. You thinking of? I was talking about getting on the highway to hell and ACDC and well, ev- the things which spread out from Cream and Led Zeppelin, yeah, and Hendrix. Where it's like it's performance music, but really what I'm saying, what what I end up saying is like, well, basically my definition of rock music, it doesn't have to be compatible with my definition of classic songwriting, and the good things about both of those are, are don't have to be the same. So really, it's, it's just like it's a semantic thing. Um, and there's a Venn diagram where there's it all meets in the middle anyway, isn't it? Indeed, because because. Like Back in Black, Highway to Hell are great, kind of great songs, even if they've got daft beautiful lyrics. lyrics. Stairway to Heaven has maybe kind of silly lyrics, nonsensical lyrics. But, I don't, I've, I've, but I've it's started to come around. Brilliant songwriting. I've started to come around to the, even the, 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 the mystical aspect of that. Bustle in your hedgerow. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, very that's fine as well. I mean, I, I, it's I'll, such a very English sort of if there's a bustle in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed. <laughs> it's. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm you know, all and for I'm it. scared of rats, scared of pigeons, <laughs> scared if, of if foxes. There's a, if there's a bustle of rats in the park, <laughs> I well, yeah, I'm. Not, I mean, I'm. I think maybe is my definition of what great songwriting is, and maybe what great rock music is should should widen a bit, and I should open those open those floodgates. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm 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 guilty of that as well. But it's it's funny you, you you have to like deal with what what is my idea of this? What, what why why do I think that Paul Simon's not not rock music? Why <laughs> why? What am I doing wrong? Um, 
the one bit of um, studio production sparkle excess <laughs> that we did put on this song was two drum kits. Two drum kits. Now, my original demo... You, when, you re- when you overdub the drums, do you, do you call it underdubbing? No, I've, uh, no, should I? No, no, I was just, I just, I, I said that the other day, like we under, because, underdub because drums, drums are on the bottom because yeah, and then I like realised that's just we, you're still overdub, you're still putting it on you're top, it on top, yeah. But you know, I kind of feel like it's you put it's it underneath. underneath. Anyway, that's a well, it would. I think it, maybe it would be if you'd done the, the, you know, you've done the guitars and the piano and things, and then you put the drums on afterwards. But what we did with this song was a second drum kit. Yeah. As, as like a studio element, and actually, I think that I'd done this on the. I did the demo. Very roughly, I maybe only had one microphone set up on the drums and did it, and thought, oh, it sounds a bit lame. I'll just, I'll redo the drums. With two microphones, but then what I ended up with was. Two drum kits, and I left them both on the demo. And it sounded good, and it's like, oh yeah, that's the sound of this. That's the sound yeah. of this. Song. And there's examples of that, um, obviously, across rock and or pop music. I remember being very surprised when when I was told about a Roxy Music song where Paul Thompson is. Oh no, it wasn't. Maybe it was a Brian Eno song where where Paul Thompson had had to play the drums twice. Oh, from his, here come the warm jets, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, yeah, there there are examples. It's not. I I don't think it's like that usual. But I, I, I mean, like Ringo the used to overdub his snare, didn't he? On um, white on, album on the white album, they did a bit of that, and then you've got variations on it, like where Prince would have a drum machine beat, but then he'd overdub a live snare drum on the top of it. Yeah. Um. We've done it. A, we've done it a couple of times. Um, we've done it. We've done it a few times. Did it on. Um, it's on Newtown on Plum. Um, noisy days. Noisy days, of course. Which is the it's like the Lady Madonna Lady style, Madonna. where you've got the ta 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 on one side and the boom boom ga a boom boom ga yeah. on the other side. Absolute rip. <laughs> I know, but what a thing to borrow from. What a rip, man! What a rip. <laughs> We'll talk about that more in the Noisy Days episode. Um, if we ever we're do not such doing a thing. one. We're not doing one, man. Um, <laughs> I keep thinking there must be some Alex Chilton solo ones where they've done two drum kits, but I actually just think there's no drum kits and they've just, just made all those sounds with basketballs and stuff <laughs> and it's just, just a crazy mess. But the, 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 the track that, I, that like sticks out to me is like, the ultimate in this double drumming, which has the the element that I'm going for, where you like you want to hear the inconsistencies in the fills, and that like little flammy thing you get from the snare drums not hitting at exactly the same time is um, from uh, Tusk, Fleet of Max Tusk, the song "I Walk a Thin Line." There's a lot of spontaneity on. Lindsay Buckingham's songs on Tusk. And there's a lot of personality on <laughs> everyone's songs on Tusk. Maybe too much. Too much for one record to contain. 
Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I love it. I do. I, I, I love it. I think it's kind of, um, it's not, you know, it's sonically, it's not a very unified record. Not not in the same way that Rumours no, no, not was. Um, you know, it's a record that I keep going back to and still like getting little things out, little just little things out of it, just get a feeling out of it sometimes. Um and I sometimes like those records, which, are, you know, I don't think we've done that this time, but we did do with, I think we even tried to do it with Measure, where it's like, let's make a record that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and you know, some, like structurally. Yeah, yeah. There's some songs you're going to miss the first time round, and it might be years before those those ones burrow into your brain. And as long as it doesn't make someone turn the record off. You have that chance, but I mean, like I mean, I have to, I have to, I have turned Tusk off sometimes. I still, I still skip most of the Stevie Nicks tracks on Tusk. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting there with them. Well, I'm leaving, I'm leaving up the possibility that eventually, the, the, I'll, I'll enjoy those ones in the same way. But it, with that record, it's like, oh, at first it was all about the Lindsay Buckingham songs, and then it became about the Christine McVie songs. So that I'm leaving up. Still is for me. Well. Yeah, but I mean, it's a great record. But the, the, yeah, there's like, you know, mentioned the White Album. I didn't even really hear Long, Long, Long properly until I'd probably had the White Album for 10 years. Because <laughs> it yeah. comes after Helter Skelter and you just, you don't even notice. It's just like, there's some whispering going on. <laughs> so if you're listening to it in the car, you it don't just even doesn't it. exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> or if you've got, your, you know, like the old fashioned walk, tape, tape Walkmans. Oh, it'd be, it'd be just it's hidden just, in the hiss. Yeah, hidden in the hiss and, you know, whatever else was going on on, on outside. But now, it, I, I mean, I absolutely adore that song and I love Ringo's drumming on it and... It's so dynamic, the whole, that track so so dynamic. And I think it's another one of, you know, we, we talked about it in another episode. It's actually one of George's really good melodies. da 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 Da, da. But he sounds so resigned and so weary. But I think that was probably a big part of his personality. <laughs> <laughs> but so any- what have we got? Anyway, we've we've gone we've we've really gone off piste and have stopped talking about. Do me a favor. Um, That's the idea, though, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, eventually we need to finish. We've been talking <laughs> for okay. Um, but there was one other thing that I wanted to mention um because the we kept the song simple we could have put more things on it um I recorded quite a lot more electric guitar on it and then well then we just took it off and deleted it because it didn't need to be there and instead deleted there's just a couple of notes um and there's a certain amount of just acceptance that actually when we play it live, it's going to be a different thing because we're going to have the full band playing. It's not just going to be everything built around like this simple acoustic guitar part, this simple drum part and the bass holding it together, which is how the how the record is. Um, but when you play this, the song on the keyboard it turns into something different, which I wasn't expecting. On the guitar. 
maybe it sounds like, you know, a Lindsay Buckingham thing, but or more likely a, a Tom Petty thing. As soon as you play it on keyboard, <laughs> it turns into... Uh, Except I can't play the keyboard. Yeah, I don't know how Billy Joel would feel about you saying this turns into Billy it Joel. Sounds just like Billy Joel. Sounds just 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 like him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Bill. <laughs> you you use your imagination. I think I think I you, think Andy Moore would be even more offended. Well, he, but if he was here, then he could play. You play it properly, then. Oh no no, I'm not going to try because I refuse to play anything that sounds tries to sound like Billy Joel and fails and the, fails when Andy Moore. <laughs> Listen. You know, Billy Joel 2, as I like to call him. <laughs> That's how highly I respect you, Andy, if you're if you're listening, which he probably isn't. Um But yeah, and actually that is one of the things. It does it does sound like a Billy Joel riff. And that was something that when we were on tour in two thousand seven with me, you and Andy. Yeah. You know, driving across the st- we were literally driving across the states in a People uh, carrier, <laughs> yeah, and a, what are you, what are you, an SRV, <laughs> SVR, not Stevie Ravon, is it? SUV, SUV, SRV, S Stevie Ravon. No idea. People carrier, <laughs> people carrier, portmobile, minivan. They call them. They call a it a minivan. A minivan. A minivan. Yeah, but we were, you know, it was basically just the three of us. With and in the back, it was like absolutely rammed with gear, just listening to Billy Joel. Getting on, getting on a Billy Joel trip, basically. We were, we were on a Billy Joel trip, and actually, I mean, I, I don't think I'd heard anything other than like his biggest, biggest. Yeah, hits. and it was Andy, Andy who brought BJ into our lives to the, to the three of us. Yeah, <laughs> and, and then, we went through all like all the albums. I feel like we went through, we definitely went through um, like Glass Houses. Glass Houses was the first one which really hit for me because the Stranger is like, it's a little bit too sparkly for my taste and it took me a while to get into it. Although, Scenes from Italian Restaurant is on that one and that's just a supreme bit of storytelling, songwriting. Yeah. And then, when we really wanted to embrace Billy Joel at at his worst, mentally and physically, musically best, mentally and physically worst, The Nylon Curtain is just an incredible record. But the the expression on his face on the back makes annoyed. you wonder about his state of mind. Yeah, but it's a. Brilliant. It's the real. He's the real deal. He's the real deal. He, Big fan of a little bit too too much rhyme rhyme for me, but I I just accept that as a kind of that's his style. That's, that's his just thing. how you're gonna. That's just fine. Just do what you want. If yeah, but I feel like I'm getting the getting the real. But one of the ones that. Andy loved, which I, I still don't have, but features the song which I think most resembles what my do, life is my life from Fifty Second Street. <laughs> I'm actually singing Andy's song, aren't I? Well, that's. I mean, <clears throat> you know, speaking of Andy and Billy Joel, we 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 still have the aborted Andrew Moore solo album. That we are we are yet to finish. So I mean, I must speak to Andy about this at least two or three times a year. When are we going to finish this? Because he had the songs, and it was like 
in in my mind, it was like a bit of bit of Billy Joel, a bit of like Randy Newman, and um, but filtered through like Andy's own sort of harmonic, um, like we used to call it reharmonizing at will. <laughs> That's what we used to say. Andy used to just reharmonize at will, just that sort of mind. So that it was like it was like. Yeah, Avant Joel. Yeah, you know there was I, bits of like, like Hungarian, Bartok style um, har- harmonies on these like kind of pounding. Actually, and going going back to the previous episode, a bit of Dave Brubeck because the yeah, yeah. that um, Vince Guaraldi track you played has that like cool modal um, similarity to mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Uh, Dave Brubeck quartet to a degree, and I. I think that Andy was Andy was quite into that. We'd have to we'd have to ask. We should we should get him on. Get him on the podcast. We're actually just basically we're just kidnap him, getting him in the studio. Because honestly, I think in finish two days we could finish the record. Oh, we could <laughs> schedule it in. Mm-hmm. 